Our scripture this morning is from 2 Peter 1, 3 through 11. 2 Peter 1, 3 through 11. I can pray this because his divine power has bestowed on us everything necessary for life and godliness through the rich knowledge of one who called us by his own glory and excellence. Through these things he has bestowed on us his precious and most magnificent promises. So by means of what it was promised, you may become partakers of the divine nature after escaping the worldly corruption that is produced by evil desire. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith excellence, to excellence, knowledge, to knowledge, self-control, to self-control, perseverance, to perseverance, godliness, to godliness, brotherly affection, and to brotherly affection, unselfish love. For if these things are really yours and are continually increasing, they will keep you from becoming ineffective and unproductive in the pursuit of knowing our Lord Jesus Christ more intimately. But concerning the one who lacks such things, he is blind. That is, he is, that is to say, he is nearsighted since he has forgotten about the cleansing of his past sins. Therefore, brothers and sisters, make every effort to be sure of your calling and election. For by doing this, you will never stumble into sin. For thus, an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be richly provided for you. This is the word of our Lord. Father, we come to you. We just stand in awe of your grace and mercy that you've lavished on us. Lord, we've been singing praises of what you have done, what you are doing, and what you will do. And Father, we desperately need you and our lives. We need a transformation as a church, big C. We need a revival in this land. And Lord, it's exciting to hear what is happening in some college campuses across our country. But Lord, we, we need that to filter through to all levels. We are a sinful lot that desperately needs to come bend our knees before you. Father, this, for some, this week has been a rough one or the anticipation of the next. And I just pray, Lord, that you would clear our minds and allow us to come to the text. Lord, as you've promised, your word doesn't come back void. And so move Hophetus out of the way and allow your word to speak to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you would, turn to Second Peter. Second Peter is the book that we're studying currently. If you've just joined us, we completed his first epistle, that is 1 Peter, uh, an epistle that was called an epistle of grace. 
And in that letter, the apostle was encouraging his readers, you know, keep it up. I know you're being insulted, attacked from the outside, but, you know, circle the wagons and, and persevere in the midst of the persecution. Time will lapse and he will write Second Peter, and Second Peter is written to the same group. These are believers that are scattered throughout modern Turkey, but this time it's called an epistle of knowledge. The attacks that are from the outside are now with inside, and the church is in grave danger, and I would argue more so than even when first Peter was written, because the false teachers are now in the camp. And Peter has some serious words to give. We saw in the opening in verse 2, he says, May grace and peace be lavished on you as you grow in the rich knowledge of God and of our Lord. And now he's going to talk about that spiritual growth that they need. In fact, these next verses, the ones that Al just read, or Moses, I joke about Al, he was like, you're Moses reading scripture, um, at least what I envision. Um, the, three through 11 is really the heart of the entire epistle. Some of you are saying, great, I don't have to come the rest of the weeks. I heard it. Yes, in many ways. Because what is going to be highlighted here is that call to grow. He's going to give us the basis for it. He's going to give us the appeal. And then he's going to give us the goal. I could have chopped it into three. you get it Costco uh, right uh, that was his big gift and uh, we said why is it working we put the batteries in the remote Notice that power, as we look here at the text, he gives us a few things to note. He says, first of all, that power is, and what has been given through that power is all sufficient. It's, it's all encompassing. In other words, what we need for godly living, it's been given to the believer. Everything is necessary. Notice the text, everything necessary for life and godliness. If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you've been adopted as his child. You've placed your faith in recognizing that Christ is the only means for salvation. You are a sinner. You need the gift that he gave. And that faith in Christ has made you complete. There's, there's no need for additional paperwork to demonstrate you are a child of the Lord. There's no waiting period for this adoption. There's no fear that the documents may not be processed correctly or that the parent, the Heavenly Father, may change his mind. No. The power that, through the resources that has been stowed is that we are sufficient. And we're going to see as we journey through Second Peter, 
the false teachers are giving a whole different story. They're saying, you know, the message that the apostles preached, you really need to do X, Y, and Z. That, that's not sufficient to be loved by God. Well, I got news for you. You cannot earn God's favor. If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you cannot lose his love. According to Ephesians, he loved us before the foundation of the world. Why? God's unfailing love for us is an objective fact affirmed time and time again in Scripture. It originates from the very nature of God. Now, does it mean that if we sin, there isn't disappointment? But his love for you doesn't change. I've met believers that struggle with that concept. You just get your head around this. God loves you deeply. And if you doubt it, if you question it, look to Calvary. Be reminded of the cross. And so we see these, this, this power has provided provisions that are accomplished. And notice, he tells us how in verse 3, through the rich knowledge in Christ. It's Christ-centered. It's personal. And that's where we find this provision. One commentator makes this statement, and it's so good. He says, when Christ calls or elects people to himself, they perceive the beauty and loveliness of his moral character. His character becomes exceedingly attractive to them. They trust God for their salvation. Believers will be morally transformed, but the foundation for their transformation is the grace of God. In other words, the gospel, if embraced, the, it comes with everything necessary for the spiritual life. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, the Christian gospel in the first instance does not ask us to do anything. It first of all proclaims and announces to us what God has done for us. Coming to a saving knowledge of Christ does not require X, Y, Z. What it requires is to recognize what God has done, X, Y, Z, <laughs> that he gave us his son. And so you've got that, that drone that's now been fully charged and it comes with a set of instructions, that's which I read usually later, right? But it, it tells you how the toy is to be used. And, and, and Peter's not done here. He says, you, you, this prayer that I have that you can grow spiritually is rooted in the, the understanding that provisions have been given to us as believers, but also promises. Notice what he says in verse 4. Through these things, I believe what he's highlighted he has bestowed on us his precious and most magnificent promises. And you say, well, what are those promises? Many commentators argue it's, it's the Old Testament promises. One scholar says there's over 748 seven promises in Scripture. And so the argument is, what we're talking about is all the promises that was given to God's people that a day would come when a Savior would be sent, the Spirit would indwell with His people, and they would walk with Him, and the righteousness of Christ would be bestowed on them. And so these are the promises that he's highlighting. Other scholars say, no, 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 that doesn't seem to be what, what Peter's highlighting here. The promises he's highlighting is what is yet to come which certainly fits with his epistle because he's going to talk about the promise of Christ's return. Remember, this is what the false teachers, one of the things they're trying to do is undermine 
these things that are yet to come, future judgment, return of Christ. And so these are the promises. I'm going to punt and say I think it's both. These magnificent and precious promises that have been given to us as believers. So the power that's given us the resources as followers of Jesus, but also the promises. Note the implications here based on what Peter has written. The source of these promises is from the gracious hand of the Lord. It's, it's what God has given to us that in, enables us to grow. Promises that we have not only for today, but promises for tomorrow. And I love how he describes, did you see how Peter describes the promises? They are precious, and he says they are magnificent. Why? Well, ultimately, it's because they stem from the precious and magnificent hand of our God. It's the word precious he uses of the Lord's blood, Christ's blood in 1 Peter 1, 19. He talks about our precious faith and our precious Savior. But why are these promises significant? Why are they precious and magnificent to us? Well, they're precious and magnificent because we do not mourn with no hope. They're precious and magnificent because we know this world isn't our home. They're precious and magnificent because we someday will be in the presence of our Savior. And they are precious and magnificent because the Lord will return and judge evil, vindicating his people. And so we see that the promises here, the source of that is from the Lord. But also we see the purpose for the promises. Notice what he says here in verse 4. He says, by means of which was promised that you may become partakers of the divine nature, escaping the worldly corruption. This phrase indicates there's a transformation that is occurring in the life of the believer. And certainly here it's clear, it's in so doing you avoid the things of this world. It's in, innately, you are seen as righteous. You've been set apart with Christ, and this is who you should be. That's the nature of who you are. I was watching Judge Judy with my kids the other day. She's a riot. She just she says things you just she didn't just say that. So these people were suing because their wolf dog had bit the neighbor, and uh, a wolf dog is half dog, half wolf. And Judge Judy goes, why would you own such a dog in the first place? You know, you can hear it, right? Uh, and you're going, she goes, it's innately half wolf. And I thought, that's the believer. We're innately followers of Christ. And the things of the world should not be where we are, right? That's what he's, he's highlighting here. And sadly, we live in a world where people are trying to escape the things of the world on their own whether it's trying to establish longer life or becoming one with nature, none of these routes are successful. Christ is the only key that's going to unlock all of this. That's what he says, you escape the worldly corruption that is produced by evil desire. So you're sitting this morning, you're saying, well, you know, you've all sung about Jesus. I hear a lot about Jesus, but why do I need him? I... He sounds like a great guy, but to say I got to place my faith in him and, and, and move my world around him? Well, let me ask you, do you have true love, joy, and peace? 
Do you know where you will spend eternity when you die? You won't live forever. hate to tell you. Observe what powerful the Lord is willing to do here in the life of the believer. For those who've placed their faith in Christ, he says, listen, I'm going to not only give you all the resources you need, but I'm giving you all the promises you need. And in so doing, as you grow in your intimacy with me, I'm going to shield you from the things that are found in this world that would corrupt, cause undue pain and suffering. And so we sit here, and, and he says, listen, these promises that you have, you, you, not only do you escape the world, but we're going to see later, he's going to talk about there is a hope that awaits that comes from this. And so, as he's laying this out for us and un- explaining the prayer that he's given to the church, uh, I, I th- again, come back to the drone. You've got it plugged in now. You've got it powered up. You've got the promises from the instructions on what it can do. But if I set the drone on a shelf in the room and I don't go fly it in the backyard, it's rather useless, isn't it? And so he says, now that we know these things, let's talk about how we live this out. And that's what he comes to starting in verse 5. He says, for this reason, make every effort. Don't miss that. This command is indicating that the spiritual life, growth in the the walk with the Lord is not automatic. (laughs) Uh, It's not obtained through osmosis. You can sleep on your Bible, but it doesn't mean you're going to have it in the canoggins, right? It's a mental trace, or it's not a mental trance. It's it's not even an idea of let go, let God. Mm -mm. It, it, It takes effort. The Christian life is hard work. And, and so he then lists these, this laundry list of eight. Now, this is a, this is a hard list because, one, it's, it's not meant to be exhaustive. So you could say, well, elsewhere, Paul talks about these virtues, yes. Nor is this eight list uh, to be read as a procession. You do faith, and you got faith, and you can move to knowledge. If you got knowledge, that's not how this was intended either. It's kind of a smattering of these are the things that mark a life of a believer. Now, we do know, based on other ancient writings of the first century and these laundry list of virtues, it's not just the New Testament. There are other ancient Greek writings that give list of virtues. The first and the last are very important. The others are kind of seen, we all working on all of this together. But notice what is the first, and that is faith. That becomes the bedrock for all of these virtues. And what is the last one? Love, right? Love, right? It's so key to the, to the church and, and to believers. That's why we, when we launched the church, it was to be loving God and loving others. It's vital. And nestled, surrounded around these virtues is the importance of knowing the Lord. Again, that's the theme of this epistle, that you know him. And, and so you see this list. Now let's go through them. Let's look at what he has here. He says, first of all, he gives us, in verse 5, faith. This is not, I think, just the receiving of Christ, knowing him as your Savior, but there's also an idea of reliability here, an understanding of faithfulness in your walk with the Lord. He then moves to excellence. 
This is an idea of fulfilling your purpose, your calling, uh, living as Christ. He's, he's, remember, he's given you the resources. He's given you the promises. And so he's expecting you to live up to that. And that's what excellence entails. Third, we see here is knowledge. And you're saying, well, wait a minute. You told me that that's what bookends this whole thing. Yes, I think here he's referring more to wisdom or discernment as a believer. Now remember the context. Our congregation is being attacked from within with false teachers, right? And so that is going to drive the virtues that Peter is highlighting. The idea that they are discerning is vital. He wants them to understand you know, Joe over here or Sally over here, they are not to be listened to. It does not correspond with, with the text, with Scripture. Self-control. He's, he's calling for restraint. And again, this is a, a warning because the false teacher is going to say, hey, you're a Christian, you can do whatever you want. And Paul saying, or Peter saying, listen, no, no, no. There must be self-control. Another virtue he gives is endurance. Or we might say it's Patience. One early church father said this was the queen of all virtues. <laughs> uh, I want patience and I want it now. Right? Uh, it's, a, it's an unwillingness to give up. It's to endure. And in the midst of suffering from the outside and attacks on the inside, Peter's saying to those faithful believers, stand fast. Don't give in. He also talks about godliness. And here it's the right attitude understanding the will of God and living accordingly. Then the last two are very similar. In fact, there's some overlap with all of these, but brotherly love. Now here he's talking about more of a respect, engaging one another within the body of, the, of, of within the church. Whereas love, the last category is a sacrificial love, I would argue that expands way beyond the, the church walls. Again, this isn't, you do one virtue and then I go to the next. This isn't a progression. Nor is it saying that we, we like Ben Franklin, we'll tackle one virtue at a time. No, 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 that's not what Peter's saying either. We do it all at once. But an understanding that faith is what is the bedrock. Love is what will ultimately be spelling out in all of this. And, and, and this is what he's calling for a congregation, his audience, Peter is, that are undergoing attacks within the church. The, their very faith is, is being undermined. And the false teachers, we talked about this, uh, they're trying to repackage Christianity so it's, it's a little bit more palatable to the world they live in. Uh, there's embarrassing elements for them of Christianity. The, the idea that, listen, whatever you believe, that's fine. This is what I believe. And it sounds familiar, doesn't it? And this is what the false teachers were saying 2,000 years ago. And we hear the same, uh, sadly, in the church, Big C, today as well, right? And, and Peter's saying, listen, we need to see faith. We need to see uh, knowledge and self-control and perseverance and godliness, brotherly love and love within the congregation. So we've got the thing powered up, the drone, we've got some instructions. And so now he's saying, listen, this is how it spells out. Now, you can make a couple other observations on this laundry list of virtues. First, 
Apart from the Holy Spirit, I would argue it's impossible to manufacture these, these qualities of the Christian character. If you're unsaved, yeah, I know some unsaved people that are very loving, but at the end of the day, it's going to be self-serving because it's not to exalt the name of the Lord. These traits are, are only viable with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And that, that's good news because we're not left on our own. Uh, God has given us the resources, right, to carry these out. And, and secondly, Peter highlights these virtues are present to some degree in every believer. Oh, I know you've met some folks that really lack brotherly love, but they're there, right? It, it's not an issue because why the Holy Spirit is dwelling. So failure to grow would imply that those virtues are ultimately not being nurtured, not being fostered and grown. And moral neutrality does not exist. Not in the New Testament. This tells us that these virtues, by the way, are not righteous works that earn God's favor because they've already stemmed from God's favor. They already stem from God's grace. And that's what he's highlighting here. I love what he also, he says about these virtues. Notice what he states in verse 8. For if these things are really yours and are continually increasing, they will keep you from the coming ineffective and unproductive in your pursuit of knowing our Lord Jesus Christ. Man, don't miss this next phrase more intimately. You want to know your Lord? <laughs> you want to know the power that comes and the, the grace that flows, the love the basking in it? I mean, that's what Moses prayed. Father, if I just get a glimpse of you. You say, I want to know the Lord. This is how. It's to foster these areas. If we're growing, our intimacy will cry, with Christ will increase. If not, we're ineffective and unproductive. And take note of those two terms. They're loaded. Ineffective is the term we use for idle or laziness. It's what James said, faith without works is dead. Uses that same phrase. It's ineffective. It's useless. And the term unproductive, it's used in Ephesians 5 as the fruit of darkness. It's, it's none of there. It's not giving God glory. That's the ultimate use of these virtues. And sadly, he says, if you don't, notice what he says, because concerning the one who lacks such things, he says in verse 9, he is blind. He's nearsighted. Now, it's strange that he would use blind and nearsighted. You think he'd use it the other way around, but the nearsightedness clarifies in what sense people become blind. There, it's an inability or refusal to see the things of the Lord. And sadly, it's what's described of the unbeliever in 2 Corinthians 4, where Paul writes, but even our gospel is veiled. It's veiled only to those who are perishing, among whom the God of this age has blinded the minds. Now, Scripture talks about Satan has blinded the eyes of people. We can blind our own eyes as well. Uh, and, and not hearing to the truth. And, and, and as believers, it appears that we can suffer from nearsightedness. Remember the church at Laodicea? <laughs> Christ's words to the church in the letter found in Revelation. What's he say he wants to do with them? Well, spew them out. He says, you're proud. He says, they are rich and have need of nothing and do not realize they are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. 
I fear that some of these words could also be said to the church in America. We too, I would argue, are suffering from nearsightedness. The church has seemed to have forgotten what the Lord has done for us. There's more emphasis on cultural relativity rather than transforming culture. We need to be concerned not about justice, diversity, and climate as much as about sin, holiness, and judgment. Such actions resemble unconverted people as they live lives that display ingratitude to God for the forgiveness of their sins. It's an indictment, and the text tells us, careful, because if you do not pursue these things and you lack them, then there's a real question, he says, because you have forgotten about the cleansing of the past sins. A few months ago, I had to get new glasses, and... My eyesight had deteriorated drastically. And if you'd been, if you been in that situation, you know what I'm talking about. The first time I got new glasses, it was like, whoa, oh, look at that. This is great. Felt like I was, I don't know, got a new TV or something. It was marvelous. Uh, I didn't realize how horrible I looked in the mirror. It was, you know, before I, I looked around like I was suspicious of everything in the room. But now I could see it was marvelous. And, you, and the question is, it's sad because I didn't realize how bad my eyesight had come, how it had transformed. And that is the danger, isn't it? As a, a follower of Christ, careful with your spiritual eyesight because it can deteriorate very quickly and we don't realize it. You say, well, how do I know how I'm doing with a spiritual eyesight? Well, let me give you three ways. Sometimes people who love you will tell you. My wife told me, hey, you're driving. Uh, can you see okay? <laughs> yes, she loves me though. Uh, so they're, they're, you need some, we need some people in our lives that are honest to say, hey, you know, I, I, I'm a little concerned with your nearsightedness spiritually right now. Perhaps it's, we need to take an examination. I mean, when's the last time you've had a spiritual eye examination? <laughs> what do I mean by that? Have you lost the freshness of your salvation experience? Do you really understand? Or do we understand all that God has done for us? Do we weep over our sin? Do we hunger to know God? Do we, we really love folks that are, well, let's say, less than lovely? Do we walk away from conversations realizing that we talked about ourselves the entire time? Is Sunday morning worship just another thing to check off for the week? It's time for a, a, a spiritual eye examination. And then after that's done, you got to correct it. I mean, can you imagine if I went to the ophthalmologist, he gives me the prescription to go get glasses at Costco, and I take it home and say, man, that is such a beautiful prescription. And so I frame it. I stick it on the wall. This is lovely. Look at, look at my eye examination. This is marvelous. You go, that's crazy. Yeah, it'd be crazy too. If, if people come along and, 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 and in the inventory of the Holy Spirit leading and saying, yeah, these are some areas we need to work on, you say, thank you very much. I'm going to laminate that sucker and put it on my refrigerator and not do anything about it. You say, well, it's costly. Getting glasses isn't cheap. And a spiritual eye examination, if it's corrected, won't be cheap either. It may cost you some friends. You may need to cancel the cable channel that you purchased. You may need to see some counseling. You, you, you may need to eat some humble pie and apologize. <laughs> but wouldn't you, 
want to fill, I mean, you'd, you'd fill your eye examination. You'd go get glasses to correct it. All the more spiritual nearsightedness. Remember Christ's words. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall see God. We need to be grateful that our eyesight can and has been corrected. Revelation 2, we read the, referred to the church, the letter to the church at Laodicea. In the seven letters, the first one is to the church at Ephesus. I mean, that church had it together. Oh, I mean, it was a who's who. They knew their doctrine and they were plotted for that. But then Christ says, but I have one thing against you. You've lost your first love. The cataracts have formed on your eyes, and you are in danger. And what does he tell them? Remember where Christ has brought you and return to the deeds you once did. I've given you all the resources for the spiritual life. I've given you promises galore. And what are you doing about it? And the same thing the church at Ephesus is told to do is what is guilty of those here in verse 9 because they have forgotten where Christ has brought them. And so I say to you, those of you who know Christ today, do you, is it a freshness in understanding this is my salvation story? This is what Christ has done for me? Or have you become the frozen chosen? And you got it all together and you go on your merry way. <laughs> the goal of spiritual maturity is found here. I love Warren Wiersbe. He says, if you walk around with corrective spiritual lenses, you will stumble. But the growing Christian walks with confidence because he's secure in Christ. And that's what Peter says in verse 10. Therefore, brothers and sisters, make every effort to be sure of your calling and election. For by doing this, you will never stumble into sin. Now, this raises two major theological questions. I don't know about you. The first time I heard this verse, it was like, ding, 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 and red flags are going off. Whoa, 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 what are you saying, Peter? The first question is, is Peter indicating that our salvation is dependent on our actions? That is, seems to be what he could be saying here. Make every effort to be sure. Here's the kicker. The term for sure is a legal term denoting that which is confirmed or ratified now listen to this, and it indicates that the guarantee stems not from the recipient, but from the one who gives the promise. While those whom God has chosen will always, because of the Holy Spirit, respond to God and confirm their election or calling, they are to live according to their calling. As James highlighted in his epistle, faith without works is dead. God chooses us and ensures us that we get to heaven. We need to choose God and live godly lives so that we can demonstrate our sincere faith and transformation. Don't forget, I mean, how did this, verse, this whole thing start in verse 3? His divine power has bestowed on us everything necessary. It's, it's based on what God has done. He, he mentions calling an election. You could take that as one single concept in other words, he has chosen us for salvation, which he's called you by the gospel. But we don't preach election to the unsaved. We preach the gospel. It's, it's when we're saved that we realize, ah, he's called me to his own. And so the first here is, is demonstrating that there is genuine faith, living that out, and that which is guaranteed because of what he has accomplished. 
You cannot null and void it. There's a second thing here, though, because you will never stumble into sin. And that one would seem to suggest, is, is Peter saying that we can reach a state of sinlessness this side of eternity? If so, let's write a book, right? Let's get on it. That's, what is this? No, no, no. The immediate context would argue otherwise. For instance, in verse 5, he says, make every effort. So it indicates that the spiritual life is an ongoing process. Peter is speaking in soteriological, that is, terms related to salvation in verse 10. In other words, the stumbling into sin refers to eternal ruin as seen in the life of the false teachers. They were never his. They've, there's no salvation there. And I think that's the context here of, of apostasy that he's referring to in this verse. Well, he gets to verse 11, and he says, For this... Or thus, an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be richly provided. There's a final promise here to the believer. You know, not only does he give you everything necessary for this spiritual life and the promises that come, but there's a day coming, right? He came down so that eventually we can go with him in eternity. The future welcome indicates a blessing that is far more wonderful than any of us deserve. <laughs> Can you imagine? Just think about this for a minute. We've already talked about how precious the promises are, how magnificent the promises are, how glorious the power that gives us the resources that we need for the spiritual life. Can you imagine what heaven's going to be like? <laughs> Notice what the text says. will be richly provided for you. For the believer, death is not setting out on an uncharted ocean. Ugh, I see that. No, no, no. Or some vague entrance into some distant and unknown land. For the believer, it's going home. Why so glorious? Because the Christian knows God. This is what... Peter's trying, he's trying to strengthen their walk with the Lord, but also not to undermine what the false teachers are doing. He says, no, 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 no. We've got a glorious promise that awaits us. The believer is diligently pursuing the Lord to know him better and better. And in so doing, we understand this faith that he's given, the promises that he's given, such as I will never leave thee nor forsake you. When you pass through the waters, Christ says, I will be there. There are no regrets on the other side. There are no desires to return. You say, well, that's hard. I'm going to miss so-and-so. You know what? If we know Christ and so-and-so, we'll turn around and we'll be there because what's a thousand years to the Lord? <laughs> when we all get to heaven, you know the old hymn. I love verse 3. It says, let us then be true and faithful, trusting, serving every day. Just one glimpse of him in glory will the toils of life repay. When we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing it will be. When we all see Jesus, we'll sing and shout the victory. Peter pens this epistle to a group of believers who not only has the world hurling insults, but corruption is underneath the hood. <laughs> the car's chugging because there's false teachers who've come into the camp and they're trying to undo what the apostles have taught. They're challenging the faith and undermining it. 
Later, Paul says of the false teachers, they wrangle over words. What you thought this meant, they've changed it. Sound familiar? Peter says, no, 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 no. We have the glorious opportunity to grow. Notice his prayer. Don't miss it. Look at it there in verse 2 of of chapter 1. May grace and peace be lavished on you as you grow in the rich knowledge of God. How can that happen? Because of what Christ has accomplished for us. All the resources he's given, the promises, the call for us to then pursue these virtues and understanding that in so doing, it keeps us from the world, it keeps us pure, and we grow in our intimacy and our walk with the Lord. And there will be a day. The struggle will be over, and we will be with our Savior for all eternity. This morning, I've spoken primarily to those who know Christ as their Savior. I plead with you who do not know Christ. You do not know what will happen when you get in that car and drive home. You have no guarantees. Look at this one who has lavished his grace upon humanity, who died for your sin, who wants a relationship with you, who will give you the resources you need, and he will meet you on the other side if he should tarry. That's our Savior. J.I. Packer makes this statement, there's a difference between knowing God and knowing about God. When you truly know God, you have energy to serve him, boldness to share him, and contentment in him. That's knowing Christ. And I, if you don't know him, we're going to sing a song. You can come down, or after the service, we'll have people over here praying, or I can pray with you. We'd love to show you how you can know this one. For us as believers, I've given, well, Peter's given us a laundry list of eight. You don't have to pick all eight this week, but I would challenge you to take one of them. Tease it out. Perhaps it's patience. Perhaps it's brotherly love. Perhaps it's, it, it's just, a, a, I need to grow in my discernment. And, and take some time this week to figure out how exactly do I need to address this? Select one of these areas. Listen, our world will not do it for you. They want to undermine it. And those, sadly, some within the church, big C again, would love to undermine it as well. So cling to the promises. Cling to the provisions the Lord has given. And what a day when we will richly receive our Savior face to face. Father, thank you for this explanation of a prayer that the apostle gave here in Second Peter. Lord, it's our desire to live worthy lives. You have loved us when we didn't deserve it. You love us now when we don't deserve it. And you will love us for all eternity. And Lord, at times we live lives as if I need to go back and try to earn something. And you, you, you said, I already love you as much as I could love you. Father, forgive us when we fall short. The spiritual cataracts that can come over our eyes and we forget all that you've done and, and what we need to be doing and what lies ahead. 
we can suffer not only from nearsightedness, but short-sightedness from far and near. And Lord, it is our prayer that give us eyes to see discernment. And Lord, thank you. Thank you for all that you are and all that you do. What a day it will be when we'll be in your presence singing praises to you as we fall at your feet with those who've gone before us, exalting your name.